Welcome to episode 12 of the Opsangani Crit Care Podcast. Hi everyone, my name is Roger Browning. I'm an anaesthetist working in a tertiary women's hospital in Western Australia. This podcast is devoted to the discussion of anaesthesia, pain, critical care and related topics involved in the care of sick obstetric and gynecological patients. I hope you enjoy listening to these podcasts as much as I've enjoyed putting them together. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, Merry Christmas. This week uh, we're going to discuss the management of hyperkalemia by going through a fictitious case of hyperkalemic crisis in a severe preeclamptic. Uh, confession to make this is inspired, well, this post was inspired by a case I had recently, uh, but the details of this fictitious case are more extreme and um, don't represent the case I was involved with. Okay, so here we go. Imagine your pager goes off, you're a member of the medical uh, emergency team in your hospital. It says Code Blue Medical Label Ward. You rush down and on arrival you're told there's a patient whom uh, a, cold, a code has just been called on. She has just arrived following an urgent transfer from another hospital. She presented to their service at 31 weeks with a headache, blood pressure of 190 over 100, proteinuria and a mildly raised creatinine. She was diagnosed with severe preeclampsia, given labetalol, nifedipine and transferred. Um, she now appears confused and has the following vital signs. A heart rate of 33 beats per minute. A blood pressure of only 74 over 55. A saturation of 92%. And she is mildly dyspneic with a respiratory rate of 17. For those of you who can view the webpage, you will see there's an ECG there. Um, for those of you who can't, I will describe it to you. Basically what it shows is um, bradycardia of around 30 beats per minute. There is loss of P waves, there is a very mild widening of the QRS complex, and she has some T waves which are sort of mildly peaked, but I'm going to be honest and say they're not that exciting, I probably wouldn't have picked it. Um, and that Im this image is courtesy of uh, Lane. thanks guys. A studious member of the medical team uh, looking after this woman, take some urgent bloods and you get a venous blood gas result which has the following results. A sodium of 139, a potassium of 8.4, which piques your interest, a pH of 7.23, uh, normal-ish pco 202 and lactate and everything else is pretty unexciting. So how are you going to manage this patient? Alright, so what we're going to do now is just briefly outline the standard management that most guidelines will uh, consistently recommend. If anyone notices any inconsistencies in my recommendations, please let me know, but I'm pretty sure this is pretty standard stuff. So the first thing you should do, and you should do these uh, two things, and they should do the, be done simultaneously. One is confirm that this is a true reading. So you need to do another urgent sample be very studious about how you take the sample so that there's no um, hemolysis um, or handling errors because uh, any damage to um, red cells when you're either taking the blood or uh, transporting or analysing it can cause hemolysis and this will cause a spuriously high potassium result. 
And then the second thing that you should do at the same time is do an ECG to make sure the patient doesn't have any life-threatening um, ECG changes. So just relating that back to the scenario I've uh, described to you, obviously this patient um, is pretty obvious history which is consistent with the uh, diagnosis of hyperkalemia and she has ECG changes already so you're going to assume that she actually does have a true reading and you're probably going to get on and, and um, treat it. <coughs> but sometimes you are just um, made aware of a high potassium level by a phone call or something like that and if the patient looks relatively normal, so looking looking back at you in the bed, you should make sure uh, that it is a real reading before you treat it because you don't want to cause harm to the patient by giving them treatments which will lower their potassium if their potassium is actually normal. So the first action in a patient who has a real hyperkalemia of um, 8.4 is stabilizing the cardiac membrane with intravenous calcium to prevent a life-threatening arrhythmia. Most guidelines recommend calcium if there are any ECG changes which um, are concerning. The interpretation that I've been able to ascertain is that that is if there's any changes or loss of the P waves or widening of the QRS complex. I think peaking of the T waves on their own is not considered to be a sort of serious life-threatening change. Um, most guidelines will also recommend you should give calcium if the absolute potassium level is over 7. There are two preparations of calcium, intravenous calcium available. One, calcium chloride, has three times more calcium than calcium gluconate. Both of them come usually as a 10 ml syringe or ampule. Uh, the calcium chloride, which is three times stronger, is thought to be more irritating and desiccant and damaging to veins. Uh, so should probably be reserved for sort of serious life-threatening situations. And in patients who are relatively stable um, with less urgent circumstances, calcium gluconate is usually the option you should go for first. The next thing you need to do once you've done that, <coughs> excuse me, is to institute management which will shift some potassium intracellularly to try and lower the plasma potassium. The first treatment which is used in all algorithms is the use of insulin and concurrent use of glucose to prevent hypoglycemia. 10 units of act rapid and 25 to 50 mils of dextrose 50%. The insulin will stimulate the sodium potassium ATPase on the cell membrane and cause potassium to be taken up into the cells and thus lower the plasma level. Uh, these, this treatment is considered to be pretty effective and in the average patient will lower the potassium by about 0.5 to 1 millimole per litre within an hour. Simultaneously, most of the time you should also give selbutamol. Uh, the recommended dose is actually 20 milligrams, which is four sort of standard nebulizer doses. Um, you could either give them back to back or perhaps even chuck them all onto the nebulizer at the same time. I did you always used to worry that um, selbutamol being a adrenergic drug could cause an arrhythmia in patients who are already prone to arrhythmia. But actually, when you read the um, read up on this topic, most patients with severe hyperkalemia have conduction deficits in bradycardia so a bit of uh, adrenergic stimulation is probably going to help that and of course um, this is a really good treatment for lowering the potassium so that's good for them as well. It is um, thought to work in the same manner, it stimulates the sodium potassium ATPase but through um, cyclic AMP so a different pathway and they are both additive. It will on top of the insulin 
Now, the effect of the insulin will also lower the potassium by another 0.5 to 1 millimole per litre per hour. A third option is available, um, but is not used as often, um, is the use of sodium bicarbonate. It makes sense uh, in a patient who has um, acidosis or severe acidosis to consider using this because uh, often the cells buffer the air hydrogen ions or the protons uh, and exchange out potassium into the plasma and that's one of the contributing reasons why the patient has hyperkalemia. So if you alkalinize their plasma by giving them 50 to 100 mils of sodium bicarbonate that should shift potassium back into cells temporarily and help the situation. Alright so once you've done all of those things you need to eliminate potassium from the body. <coughs> In most situations you need to you utilize the patient's kidneys so renal elimination. So enhancing renal elimination usually involves giving a diuretic like furosemide, um, plus or minus um, potassium-free crystalloid, which in most situations is saline, um, to try and help excretion of potassium. Patients who have complete renal failure and so have no ability, obviously, to excrete potassium through the kidneys will need emergency or urgent dialysis. Gastrointestinal exchange resins like rhizonium which is the um, preparation used in Australasia, uh, not considered useful in the acute management of hyperkalemia by most guidelines. They are very slow acting and uh, the um, excretion of potassium um, via these mechanisms is usually sort of, um, is only for patients in the, in the who have chronic sort of low grade hyperkalemia. So the management of patients with chronic renal impairment. Okay, don't forget to identify and treat the cause. So why has the patient suddenly developed hyperkalemia? Because you need to address these issues if you want to actually stop the hyperkalemia from reoccurring. <coughs> In most situations, you know, severe hyperkalemia is a combination of factors. So the most common causes that contribute, uh, one, drugs. Drugs such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin 2 blockers, and beta blockers. We'll get onto that in a minute. Um, can cause hyperkalemia. Patients with renal dysfunction have decreased ability to excrete potassium. That's going to come into play. Um, and the other two things that um, are often um, associated with this condition is ex unfortunately excessive administration of calcium by overenthusiastic medical staff or release of potassium from damaged cells. So the most common cause of that is actually hemolysis, um, which can occur in uh, things like HELP syndrome. Tumor lysis um, is a classic description where tumor cells rapidly um, lyse um, when they die, releasing lots of potassium. Tra extensive trauma, so people have um, major trauma to their muscles and um, areas of their body. And don't forget extensive surgical injuries. So patients who have had massive sort of surgical resections, there's a lot of debrided and damaged and inflamed tissues and these can also release potassium. Um, so some of these things can occur in some of our older gynecology patients who are having major surgery. Um, but this specific case is a pregnant woman with preeclampsia. So the likely contributing um, factors in her are renal impairment, which can occur and um, deteriorate quite rapidly in preeclampsia. She may have acidosis, but don't forget also preeclamptics can sometimes develop hemolysis as part of their HELP syndrome. And... Uh, transfusions are often administered to bleeding um, obstetric patients, though they're not, though that wasn't a contributing factor in this case. 
um, we will talk in a minute about the drugs, including beta blockers. I just want to do a little bit of a deep dive on so a few other aspects of hyperkalemia. We've dealt, we've covered the basic management that you'll read about in most uh, guidelines describing um, this management of hyperkalemia. But what about um, specific scenarios? For example, a patient who's actually had a cardiac arrest secondary to hyperkalemia. So the first thing to mention is that um, you need to be, if someone has had a cardiac arrest, make sure you're thinking about the 4Hs and 4Ts because this is a classic reversible cause. Um, you should do some, you know, an, a blood gas during a cardiac arrest. And if you notice that they have a very, very high potassium, this is something that you can actually fix. The good news is adrenaline is um, given in large quantities in most patients who have had an arrest. And being a beta agonist like salbutamol, that will help uh, move potassium back into the cells. If you're in this situation, the patient's had an arrest with severe hyperkalemia, you should also give uh, liberal amounts of sodium bicarbonate and calcium and even more calcium. Um, it is described that you should never stop a resuscitation until the potassium has been normalised. I guess that's a similar principle to a patient who's had an arrest due to hypothermia where you, the mantra is um, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. Um, so there are some successful case reports of patients receiving intra-arrest dialysis or ECMO. Um, and this has um, brought about good out neurological outcomes from patients with previously refractory cardiac arrest. <coughs> so patients who um, are in cardiac arrest from hyperkalemia can have things like VF, but often it will be refractory to defibrillation um, or severe sort of PEA-related sort of bradycardic rhythms. And I listened to a really interesting um, discussion about a patient who had a bradycardic PEA arrest and they just couldn't get the pace uh, the pacemaker to capture suddenly some bright spark just noticed that they were hyperkalemic they gave lots of potassium and all of a sudden the pacemaker worked and they got return of spon spontaneous circulation so that's a really interesting and useful tidbit what about hyperkalemia and preeclampsia so I did muse over this case I was involved in the other day and I did think of a few things that I thought I should bring up so the first was that um Intravenous calcium is in fact a mild vasoconstrictor and when you give it, it can cause a transient rise in the blood pressure and as in the patient I was involved with the other day, it did transiently cause a bit of excessive hypertension so keep an eye on that and be aware of it, I guess, um, is the take-home message. Um, be ready to treat the hypertension. The second is, and I didn't realise this, um, but it's well described that beta blockers can contribute to if not be a primary cause, but definitely contribute to hyperkalemia. And it makes sense now that I've thought about it, because um, one of the treatments for hyperkalemia is the use of beta agonists, such as salbutamol, to shift potassium into the cells. And so it seems pretty obvious that beta blockers will block that effect and they can contribute to the excretion of um, potassium back into the plasma and exacerbate hyperkalemia. Um, so if you have a hyperkalemic patient, who's on a lot of labetalol, for example, consider changing that, uh, or stopping it, and changing to another antihypertensive like hydralazine, um, or even a loop diuretic like fruzamide, which um, sort of makes sense, because that will actually help excrete the potassium in the, in the, as well as perhaps get rid of some of the edema, and has a mildly antihypertensive effect too. Um, on the webpage, I've got links to a couple of case reports and some um, literature on that. Um, the other 
thing I was thinking about in preeclampsia specifically. It's a bit more of a question than a um, than a statement. Is you know, nifedipine is actually a calcium antagonist. So is that going to affect the ability of us to use calcium? Um, maybe I don't know. It isn't really a cardiac specific calcium antagonist like verapamil or diltiazem, but certainly yeah, maybe maybe there's something there we should be aware of as well. All right, we're almost finished. I guess any discussion about hyperkalemia is not complete if we don't talk about what are these sort of ECG changes you should be looking out for to sort of trigger your suspicion. Um, a great phrase I came across was that, uh, remember, hyperkalemia is like the syphilis of the ECG world. It can be a very sneaky mimic. So basically you can have some really bizarre, weird-looking ECGs. Don't forget to check the potassium because sometimes it can be related to that. Having said that, the classic findings are peak T waves initially, and then as things progress, widening and flattening of the P wave, widening of the PR interval, eventually loss of the P waves, widening of the QRS, bizarre QRS morphology, um, deteriorating into a sort of sinusoidal ECG, and also any form of conduction block can be caused by hyperkalemia. And obviously, right at the end, you can get asystole VF or uh, PEA arrest. Um, there's some great links on the website to the management of hyperkalemia um, on the Life in the Fast Lane. Uh, there's a couple of podcasts also that I highly recommend, mcrit.org and um, uh, Emergency Medicine Cases. And if you're interested in any sort of electrolyte um, or metabolic conditions in the, in the management thereof, I highly recommend the website Precious Bodily Fluids, The Musings of a Salt Whisperer, written by a nephrologist. There's a free 500-page textbook on there, which is considered the sort of the, the guru's manual to all of these um, electrolyte conditions. Okay, I found it really useful. I, I learned a lot putting this together, and hopefully you found some um, useful information in there too. Thanks for listening, and uh, once again, any feedback is welcome. See you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguidecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to our interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.